Welcome again. For those of you who may not know, my name is Derek. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Fellowship of Grace, and we're going to be continuing on in our series through the book of Romans. Really, really got some good stuff that I think, not, not that I have, but I think God's got some good stuff for us this morning. And before we kind of jump into there, I want to just tell you a little bit about myself. Most of you know my family. Um, I have a wife and three kids, eight, six, and four. One of the things that's uh, maybe not completely unique to our family or not, but as most families with small children can attest, dinner time around our house, it's, I'm hoping someday, I'm looking forward to the day where we kind of sit around the dinner table and can talk about our days and really, you know, deepen our relationships with one another and those sorts of things. And right now, it's just not that at all. And it's getting better, but, but our, our kids somehow, Ann and I have talked about this, but we have no idea how we created the, the world's most pickiest eaters, and literally, whatever we put in front of them is the worst thing ever. I mean, even things they like, the rest of the time, during dinner time, it's like, they don't like it. We don't, we don't understand it. So, you know, a lot of times, they, they will turn into, like, professional negotiators. No, they, they come up with the craziest reasons of how they can eat certain parts of the food and eat the leaves of the broccoli and not the stems and, or trade with their sibling. Maybe if they eat faster, can they eat less? And it's, they come up with all these crazy ideas and... And I remember one time, Ann and I were just sitting across the table from one another, and the volume level at our dinner table is just, we have no idea how, how it happens. Most of our kids, so our oldest is Adeline, eight years old, and six-year-old six year old Josiah, four-year-old Gideon. Gideon just likes to scream, for, to hear himself scream. We were at a friend's house last night, and he spent about three minutes out of the 30-minute dinner time with them at the table. We were chasing him all over the house the rest of the time. And in um, and, and those three minutes, he was yelling most of them because he, he just likes to hear himself yell. He wasn't mad or anything, just, just wanting to yell, yell, and increase the volume level. And so, so there's one time we're at home and we're eating and the volume level just keeps rising. Like throughout the dinner, like nobody's really fighting or arguing or it's just loud, like animated. And you know, and most of you know Ann and I, we, we're like, we're not super like boisterous, extroverted, animated people, but somehow our kids are at dinner time. So it's getting louder and louder and I look across the table at Anna and our, we just kind of lock eyes, get mouth words to each other. And then I just had this moment of, I think, parenting clarity and, and I just scream at the top of my lungs, stop yelling! And everybody, everybody, be quiet. And then of course my six-year-old son just is like, dad, you just yelled. I'm like, okay, you have a point, but... Still, but yeah, I was guilty as charged. And and today we're going to talk about how really it is much easier to spot the wrong in others while we're doing the same things. We're doing the same kinds of things. The Apostle Paul in Romans, he's going to be really talking to us about how we're all guilty as the next person. We're, We're as guilty as the next person and therefore we all are subject to the judgment of God. And that's really the the title of this series, or the sermon this morning. The righteous judgment of God. Sounds pretty fun, doesn't it? Right? Most of you came here to hear about judgment. It's a t- pretty popular theme in our culture today. Uh, not so much. Not so much. Most, it's not going to attract a lot of people. But, but Paul is going to, he's going to bring the heat a little bit today. He's going to bring the heat and kind of, uh, he's not going to pull any punches. I mean, I know you didn't come this morning either to get punched in the face, but, but I'm hoping he's, he kind of, I've felt like I've been getting punched all week preparing for it. So I'm hoping you can share, share a little bit in this where he just kind of punches us in the face in a good way and kind of wakes us up to the reality of our, of our position before God and what it is like uh, before a holy and righteous God. Because we've talked a lot about this, but in order for us to really understand the beauty of the gospel, we have to understand the ugliness of our sin. They go hand in hand. They go hand in hand. In order for us to understand the good news of Jesus, 
We have to understand the bad news without Jesus. And that's what he's getting at. So really to this morning, I want to kind of, in a greater way, help us understand that we are guilty before a holy God. And, and that's, that's really our state before Jesus. And we also want to help us raise awareness of our own sins and, and to have a greater understanding of God's righteous judgment. And we're going to look at Romans 2, verses 1 through 11 this morning. And really kind of in chapter 1, which we, uh, Pastor Michael talked about last week, the last few verses where it's talking about God's wrath on humanity. I mean, Paul wasn't pulling any punches then either. He, he was saying, talking about how humanity has just has gone off the deep end, right? And God has kind of given them over to their sinful desires, all sorts of sins, sexual sins, sins of being disobedient to their parents, sins of not having enough faith, all, the whole, whole gamut, attitudes and actions. But God has given them over, and it ended on chapter 1, verse 32. It said, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, deserve to die they not only do them but give approval to those that do. So it's all kind of about these evil people. Now, we'll take a shift here in the beginning of chapter 2, in which I'll read these first 11 verses. So um, hang with me. It gets, it's pretty tough. All right? So it says, that, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. So we see here, right off the bat, in verse 1, there's a, a pretty significant shift. Chapter 1, Paul's talking about them, them. And he's, you notice in verse 1, it's all about you, talking directly to the reader of this, talking, in a sense, to us today. I mean, that day, he's talking directly to the Jews and, and really helping them say, stop looking at all the Gentile, the, the non-Jew sins. Stop paying attention to them, but look at yourself. Look at yourself. And we see this in verse 1, and I think this is a, um, it's just easy for us as sinful human beings to always take other people's sin more seriously than we do our own. We do this for, for many reasons, but I think one big one is sin, inherent in sin is this kind of desire or um, it, it just in the nature of it is to shift blame. It's to shift blame, to deflect responsibility to somebody else, um, to be blind to our own faults. Um, we, we tend to have no problem. It's just easy for us to see what other people are doing wrong, right? But it's hard for us to do that, to look at ourselves and see what we're doing wrong. We have to really work at that. Even when you think about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, when God comes and after they've eaten the fruit and committed the first sin, God's looking for Adam and he's, Adam, what have you done? Well, it wasn't me, it wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me. He's deflecting, shifting blame, already deflecting responsibility. And so unchecked, we, we really have this propensity to, to easily see the wrong in others. 
but have difficulty seeing it in ourselves. And real quickly, I want to look at three verses that I think help maybe give three ways that we try to elude the fact that we're guilty of what other people are actually doing, of what others are doing. All right, so this isn't part of your official outline through those verses, but real quick, first verse here is Jeremiah 17, 9. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We see here the first way is we're just naturally blind to our own faults. You know, a lot of times you hear the, word, the phrase, follow, just follow your heart, follow your heart. That's a very dangerous thing to do, a very dangerous thing to do. Our heart is deceitful. You know, if you're following your gut instinct all the time, you're probably making some pretty big mistakes all the time, right? Because it's just it's who we are and, and what sin does to us. Um, Hebrews 4.13, another verse that shows us a way that we do this is, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So here we see we, sometimes we just we forget what we've done, that what is wrong. We forget what we have done that is wrong. You know, while we have been forgiven of our sins as, as Christ followers, if you have received the gospel, received Christ's payment, and believe in him. We have been forgiven for our sins, but we can't just act like we're, we're perfect, because we're not. But we must live in light of what we've been forgiven for. We, we can't ignore or, or forget completely our sins. And, this is, and I'm not asking you to like wallow in your sin, or Paul's not saying that. But we, must, we can't just act like nothing's ever happened. Nothing's ever happened. We've never been saved from anything. And third... Matthew 5, 21 and 22. This is Jesus talking, kind of in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. It says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Here is where, where Jesus is kind of raising the bar on a lot of these Old Testament laws, where they're like, Well, I, don't, I haven't killed anybody. I'm good. Well, Jesus is saying, No. Have you been angry at somebody? And everybody's like, mm, Okay. All right. We try to minimize our sins. We, we try to basically rename our sins or make light of the things we've done because we don't think they're as serious as somebody else. You know, while other people might lie and cheat, we just stretch the truth a little bit. You know, other people are basically blowing up in anger. Well, we just, we're just letting off a little steam. Others have prejudices, but, but we have convictions. We have convictions. I think this is, is many different ways that we make justifications for, for our sin. And today, as we go through these verses, I want, I want Paul to, and the Holy Spirit inside of us, if you're, if you're a believer, to really help us open up our eyes and take an honest look at ourselves. All right, so we're going to jump into, back into the Romans 2, 1 through 11. And we're going to look at this first point. In these first few verses, verses 1 through 4, Paul's basically saying, we will all be judged. We will all be judged. We see this um, in verse 1 where it basically says that we have no place. You are in no place to judge. We are in no place to judge. This is point A. Again, Paul is really trying to drive home this fact that, that everyone will be judged because the Jews, especially the Jews in that church in Rome, had kind of, there was this deception among themselves that, that they were going to be somehow exempt from God's judgment. They got a pass from God because they would, you know, they're part of God's chosen people and they wouldn't be judged in the same way as others. But that was not the case. And John the Baptist, before Jesus came on the scene, he was saying those same things to the Jews then. Jesus said it. 
as we saw, and then now Paul is saying it again. He was really, as the Jews were starting to get a little judgy with, towards the Gentiles, um, that he was really trying to uh, tell them not to do that. And there's a difference now I want to mention that between judging other people and helping another brother or sister, pointing out sin in a, in a brother or sister of Christ and, and lovingly correcting them, okay? So, so judging, don't hear today that, oh, well, I, I can never tell anybody that what they're doing is wrong. That, that's not the case. We see in Scripture a lot that as a community of Christ and as um, Christians, we have a responsibility to help help others. And because we still have this sinful nature in us, a lot of us are blind to our own sins, even as believers, and we need help. We need help. And that's different from judging from a, a position of above somebody, looking down, thumbing our nose at them, and telling them how evil they are while, while thinking of how great we are. There's a difference between that and then the other situation of coming alongside, side by side with somebody, acknowledging our own sins, our own faults. We're imperfect, but we want to help somebody in their struggles and in their sin. Verses 2 and 3 bring up our next point where it talks about, Paul begins to ask this question. He says, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? He's saying and implying in this verse that we won't escape judgment. We won't escape. So we're in no place to judge and we can't escape it. And as he asked this kind of rhetorical question, I want to ask you a question to just think about for a second. Who is the biggest sinner that you know? Who is the biggest sinner that you know? And you may have somebody come, come to mind real quick. Why don't you just think about them for a second. Maybe it's somebody who has wronged you over and over and over again. And, or maybe it's that, that person at work that, that is just braggadocious about their weekend escapades and, and going against God and everybody. Whoever that person is, think about them for a second. Then I want us to really think, think through maybe in a different way how we answer that question. Who is the biggest sinner that you know? I think you should always be the biggest sinner that you know. Each one of us. We should always be the biggest sinner that we know. Now that doesn't mean you should go out and sin a bunch so you actually are the biggest sinner. But we should think of ourselves in that light. Because in the pastor... So one, one pastor says this, and he explains it, I think, really well. I'm going to just read it. If you're not the biggest sinner you know, then it will be very difficult for you to become all that God is, wants you to be. If you feel that there are people out there that are bigger sinners than you, then it allows you a place of comfort. You will feel like you are maybe a step above others, and you're not. The fact is we are all in the same boat together as sinners. It doesn't matter if you're in the front of the boat or the back of the boat. If the boat's sinking... We're still sinners and lost without, without Christ. So we all are going to face the same judgment based on our works. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But you see in these verses, verses 2 and 3, this first part where he says that judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So the judgment of God rightly falls. Some different translations express that a little bit differently. But it's really speaking to the, the just, true, and right nature of God's judgment reminding us that we're really in no place to question God's judgment because of how perfect it is. You know, a lot of times it's easy for us to think through some questions. We, we, we think about the world and the evil that's in it, and we think, well, God, why, why don't you judge people in the past like Hitler or Stalin when they rise to power, murder millions of people? Why don't you judge them? Why don't, how do you allow these things to take place? And 
you know, just all the evil, even in our own country today that's just going around. God, why don't you judge them? How do you, how do you allow these things to go on year after year? Really, our questions should be more along the lines of, you know, God, why, why didn't you judge me yesterday when I lied to my boss about that missed deadline? Or God, why, why did you judge me yesterday when I fudged the numbers on that monthly report or gossiped about this person and put them in a bad light, made this other person think badly of them? God, why didn't you judge me then? Are there times that you find yourself focused more on the sin of others rather than your own sin? I think it's a good question for us to, to think about, to think about. You know, makes me think of this elderly couple who had stopped at a restaurant while they were on a road trip. After finishing their meal, they jumped back in the car. After about 20 minutes, the wife told her husband that she had unknowingly left her glasses back at the restaurant. The husband blew his top because there was no place to turn around, very frustrated. When they finally headed back, he groaned and complained the whole way, scolding his wife for being so forgetful. He reminded her that this was ruining their day and they were not going to, and now they were going to be late for their next stop. When they finally arrived at the restaurant, the wife opened the door quickly, hurried across the parking lot. The husband rolled down his window and yelled, hey, while you're in there, you might as well get my hat and credit card. <laughs> You know, it's, and as we hear that, and as I even read that the first time, I'm kind of thinking, yeah, I could, I could see, I know a couple couples that kind of act like that, and some, some guys that would do that to somebody. Of course, not me. I, I would never do that, but of course, I, I know a couple people, and then I was like, wait, that's kind of the point I'm getting across. You know, the Paul's getting to us is it's so easy to see it in other people, and, and, but, but to admit our own, it's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. So I think today, along these same lines, I want to continue and look at this last verse in this first section in verse 4. Really powerful verse. It says this, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? When we put ourselves above others in a place of judgment, we're really spitting in God's face. God's grace and kindness towards us should never lead us to, to think of how great we are. It should always lead us towards a, a posture of humility and repentance. So as I read this verse, you know, I'm thinking, so what are some ways that we presume upon the kindness? What does that mean? Some other words that kind of, in a sense, synonyms or other translations of the Bible, they translate that different. Some of them say they show contempt for the riches of God's kindness. So you show hatred towards it. You, you despise it. And I was like, I don't, do, I, do I do that? And, I, and as I really thought about it, I think one of the ways that we really do that today is what Paul's talking about. It's, it's kind of our casual approach to sin in our lives. It's kind of like, eh, you know, I'm kind of doing some things that are wrong, but yeah, maybe it'll get better. You know, I struggle with this sin, you know, struggle with the sin of, lust, you know, every, every once in a while, and, but at least I'm not like that guy who cheated on his wife and, you know, treats her horribly, that sort of thing. Or maybe, I, yeah, I, I do have this kind of problem sometimes of getting mad at people and kind of picturing their face on a dartboard and throwing darts at it, but at least I'm not like the other people that actually talk mean to them and talk bad about them. And we, we tend to justify these things in our, in our minds and, and in some ways, get content in our sin. And that's a dangerous place 
to be. And I think in, in that we show contempt for, we presume upon God's kindness. God's kindness is always meant to lead us. His patience towards us is always meant to lead us towards humility, not to take advantage or abuse the grace of God, which is point C. We must not abuse the grace of God. Jews back then used the patience of God towards them. You know, you think through the whole Old Testament, and God certainly allowed the the Israelites to suffer some pretty big consequences, but he continued to be patient with them and not wipe them off the face of the earth. And they used that sometimes to, to think about well, this shows that we're right with God. And Paul's saying, no, it doesn't. This doesn't show, this shows that his blessings towards you should have led you to repent of your sin. It's just the opposite of what you think. You're thinking it's, you're okay, but he's, this patience of God towards you is, is meant to lead you to repent of your sin. So it's just some things for us to think about. Right? In those first few verses, Paul is, he's explaining kind of who will be judged. And hopefully you saw that. Everyone will be judged. Now we're going to shift to how we will be judged in the last few verses of this section. We will all be judged on how we live. And and there's a couple of judgments that happen at the end times. There's a lot of different ones, and obviously don't have time to go into detail. But I want to mention these two because they'll kind of help us as we we talk these last few minutes. The first one's the judgment seat of Christ. The next one's the, the great white throne judgment. Now the judgment seat of Christ is the one for believers only. So there is a judgment that we as believers face. Now this isn't a judgment for salvation or not salvation, but as believers we still have a judgment to go to, um, to judge our works. The great white throne judgment is for unbelievers where they are judged and punished on the basis of their works and their works alone, which are obviously not good enough. So you may, you may start having the question, okay, so you're talking a lot about judgment. We see kind of in these verses, Paul's talking to, is he talking to Christians, non-Christians? How, you know, if believers are judged by our works, how are we saved by our faith? How does that, how does that work? So, if you, so a few months ago, we went through the book of James, which talks a lot about faith and works and how they, they go hand in hand and, and the order that they should come in, all right? If you remember, I shared this uh, equation in a sense. Faith plus works equals salvation, is not true, right? Hopefully, when you saw that, you kind of the hair stands up on the back of your neck. You're like, mm, there's something wrong with that. That's not how we should view it. Faith plus works does not equal salvation. Faith is, salvation is by faith alone, all right? So, how should we think about it? I shared this, and I think this is what James, Paul, and Jesus would all share. Saving faith leads to salvation, which then leads to good works. It just does. You're, you're, you're transformed, a transformed heart, leads to that. And Jesus, in Matthew 12, as he's again speaking towards the religious leaders of that day, I think echoes this point. He says this, you brood of vipers. He didn't pull many punches either, Jesus didn't. Um, How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So even in here, Jesus is talking about how our words, our actions, reveal what's in our heart. Just as you can judge a tree by its fruit, you can judge a heart by its actions. You know, that's why God judges by works. Not to establish the way of salvation, we can't get confused there, but works are simply a basis of judgment. You are saved by faith and judged by works, Your works ultimately reveal what is in your heart, either faith leading to life or unbelief 
leading to judgment. So we need to kind of think about it through that lens as we talk about these next two points. The first one is this. It's that good works are rewarded. Good works are rewarded. And we see this in a few of these verses between 6 and 11. Verses 6 and 7 and verse 10 talk about this. And I know we read these at the beginning, so I won't reread them word for word, but look at a few of these phrases. We see here that he's talking about those who, by patience, perseverance, and consistency, they, they, how these are true marks of a believer. Then again, and he's, we see here, seek for glory and honor and immortality. This, these are people that are seeking after God, living a life that honors him and brings glory to him. In that phrase, you see it a lot throughout Scripture, glory and honor. It, the Jews would recognize that as a description of what God desires for man or what man should ascribe to God. And then we see here the result of that. He will give eternal life. He will give eternal life because li- that life is born good fruit, but not just because of that, but be- it's from a heart that's been transformed, saved by grace through faith. You know, there, there's this quote here that, that I think really helps capture this again. It, it's uh, from a pastor. He says, our, our deeds do not earn, they exhibit our salvation. Okay, our deeds do not earn, they exhibit our salvation. They are not the merit of our righteousness, they are the mark of our new life in Christ. Our deeds are not sufficient to deserve God's favor, but they do demonstrate our faith. So they're not sufficient to save us, but they do demonstrate our faith. So we need to keep that in mind as we look and read throughout Scripture and really honestly look at ourselves sometimes and see if we're exhibiting those good works to reveal what's in our heart. All right, then the next point we have is kind of the opposite idea. If good works are rewarded, evil works are punished. Evil works are punished. Verses 5, verses 8 and 9 talk about this. Talk about people with hard and impenitent hearts. Basically the exact opposite of a soft and repentant heart. They're in a posture of defiance towards God, not humility. We see that they're storing up wrath for themselves you know, there was this teaching back then that the Jews were going to be exempt. They, they wouldn't experience God's wrath based on their covenant relationship. Paul, again, over and over in these verses is reminding them, hey, you're not, somebody, you're not, who you think, you're not as special as you think you are. You're not going to be exempt from these things. We see in these verses, again, there are people that are self-seeking, that do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. You know, we talk, we've talked before about how you're always worshiping something. We're, we always, we're born as kind of worshipers. That's, that's how we were created in God's image. We're either worshiping God or somebody else. And that's along those same lines, we're, we're always obeying something. We're either obeying God, as Paul says, or obeying unrighteousness. And then the last phrase in, in here is the Jew first and also the Greek. So we see, you know, reminding ourselves of Paul's initial audience, the original audience there. The Jews' position doesn't give them an advantage in judgment. Um, but in some ways, and, and he, he's trying to even swing the pendulum for them and say, hey, look, you're, you're held almost more responsible because of your relationship. Don't, don't think yourself exempt from it. So I think all of these things, how do we apply them to our lives? How do we um, reflect on our own lives and really see, our, our, ask ourselves, are we marked by righteousness, our actions when we, when we see ourselves or how, how do people see us? Do they see us as people who live 
live following after God or, or is our life marked more by obeying unrighteousness? I think this is a challenge for us to, because as we've seen, our heart, our heart really determines our actions. So our actions are going to reveal what's in our heart. doesn't mean we can be perfect in this life, but if, if your life isn't really on that trajectory, by judging by your actions, it, I think it should cause us questions. Of, uh, where is my heart? Is my heart really in the right place? The last point here this morning, verse 6 and verse 11, is this, that God shows no favoritism. Again, probably what we've been talking about, but in verses 6 and 11, it, Paul says, you know, he, he's going to render to each one according to his works. So in that judgment seat of Christ where believers are judged, we will be judged by our works. We're, we're not going to be sent to hell or not, but, but the works that we do that don't have any eternal significance will be burned. But the good works, the works that do have eternal value, um, will be rewarded. And in this impartiality in judgment, you see there, God shows no partiality. Impartiality in judgment was a requirement from the Old Testament from the very beginning as God set it up. He doesn't show favorites. God doesn't have favorites. There's no, there's no middle ground with God. You think about, well, I'm, I, hope I'm, I think I'm kind of okay with God, or maybe I'm probably kind of not okay. There, there's no kind of with God. You're either okay or you're not. And because of that, and really, that we should um, really recognize that as part of the beauty of God's judgment and God's wrath, in a sense. That there is no, there is no middle ground. He is perfect. And, and John MacArthur, uh, pastor, author, that writes about, in one of his books, about the purity of God's wrath. I want to just read this very briefly. He says, The wrath of God is not like human wrath. Most often when we get angry, we are offended and our pride gets in the way. There is, that is a reflection of the evil heart of man. Even when we are angry about the right things, our own sinfulness usually pollutes our anger. God's anger is pure and untainted by sin. God's wrath is pure because it is related to his holiness, which demands that he not tolerate sin. He never makes a mistake in exercising his wrath. He doesn't fly off the handle in momentary fury. When he is angry, it is the right expression of his holiness and justice. He is always in complete control of himself and his emotions. He cannot be any other way. His being will not allow him to. Most of us don't want to think about God's wrath, but, but we must. We must because his just wrath on sinners who do not, because without his just wrath on sinners who do not come to faith in Jesus, then we can't really begin to understand his grace and his love. And, and I think we, we see that over and over, um, you know, the Bible talks a lot about judgment, and, and I think hopefully this morning as we look at these verses, again, I, you know, it's not the most feel-good, warm, fuzzy type of sermon, um, but, but I think it's important for us to have this appreciation for, for the wrath of God and for his judgment. So who is the biggest sinner that you know? Hopefully, we can get to a place where we answer that with our, I, I'm the biggest sinner. Because I think when we keep that perspective, when we view ourselves as the, the biggest sinner, that's really part of our, the, our growth in our relationship with Christ. Because in a way, it's kind of like a, it's a math equation that doesn't really work. But as we grow closer to Christ, hopefully we're, we're going to sin less. Because we're, we're growing closer to him. Christ, God, it does not like sin, obviously. And so we're, we're growing close. We're sinning less, but we're repenting more. 
if that makes sense. We're, we're sinning less, but we're repenting more. And that, that's, that's kind of that mindset that, that we're trying to get at with that question. Who is the biggest sinner that you know? Now, I know some of you in here, maybe you are saying, well, this, all this judgment stuff, maybe you're new today or not a follower of Christ. I want to encourage you to not let this, this talk of the judgment of God be like, oh, well, yeah, he's this big angry God in the sky that's just going to judge everybody by, by how they act. That's not at all what, it, what, and hopefully you didn't gain that from what Paul's writing in that book or what I said today. But hopefully that will draw you to him draw you to him, recognizing that, that he is a righteous, holy, and just God. And, and by his very nature, he demands a, a payment for sin. And then you can recognize that in Jesus, as believers, we don't have to, to earn salvation by our good works. We, we get to, we're privileged to exhibit our salvation now through our good works in, in gratefulness and gratitude towards Christ. So I know, I know again, not an easy topic to listen to. I thank you for hanging in there. I'm just going to finish with one quote that I think helps us um, as we talk about this topic and kind of reflect back on it and how it should help us view God. It's a quote by, by John Piper. I'll have it up here on the screen for you to read as well. It says this, If hearing about God's judgment makes it harder for us to love God, then probably the God we love is a figment of our imagination and not the real and true God. If we love the true God, we must know the true God. There is something wrong with our faith if we cannot sing praises to God, not only as our loving Father, but also as the righteous judge of all the earth. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you this morning and are grateful for who you are. And God, we come this morning grateful for your judgment. And God, I... I just ask for forgiveness for the times where I overlook that, uh, where I tend to just want to focus on other aspects of your holiness and things like that, God. I, but just as beautiful as your grace and mercy towards us, God, is your judgment because it is right and holy and pure. And God, we recognize that we, we are born into this world as sinners separated from you, and we, we thank you so much for the gospel of Jesus and God, we look forward to um, just that day when we get to celebrate with uh, believers all across the world as you return and send your son, Jesus, to return. God, we, we thank you. Help us to really um, make sure our hearts are in the right place because, God, we know that if our hearts are in the right place, we're, our actions will reflect that. And God, help us as a church and as individuals to reflect more glory back to you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.